As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is Keith Law. Welcome to episode 68 of The Keith Law Show. I will be joined today by Dr. Katie Milkman, the author of the wonderful new book, How to Change, which I think might actually deliver on its title. I encourage you to check it out. For those of you who are subscribers to The Athletic, I have written a lot of words since the last podcast, including write-ups of just about every major trade from the very frenetic trade deadline this year. You can find links to all of those. On the Athletic app, also if you go to my own blog, meadowparty.com slash blog, the lead post right now titled Stick to Baseball has links at the top to all of those trade write-ups as well as a couple of other things I've written recently. I also did a pretty long podcast with Derek Van Riper, part of the Athletic's daily baseball show at the deadline. Deals were actually still coming in while we were talking, and we reviewed a lot of the significant storylines from that day. Just before that, I also ranked the top 50 prospects in minor league baseball. Now, that list is going to get a little adjustment in the next 24 hours or so because Kumar Rocker, who I did have on the list, did not sign with the Mets. That's probably the most interesting post-deadline story we have right now. A few of you asked for my comments on it, and I actually would say the less said, in some sense, the less said the better because we just don't know what the Mets saw in Kumar Rocker's medicals that they didn't like. And so to try to argue that one side or the other was wrong in the negotiations to me is pretty dangerous because we don't really know what the issue at hand was. I will say, I think the implication that this was just a minor elbow issue maybe that would require Tommy John surgery, that assumption seems unfounded. I cannot imagine that any major league team would walk away from a player like that, given how many players do need Tommy John surgery right out of college or even right out of high school and still end up signing. I hope at some point we'll see some more details and we'll maybe get a better sense of what really went wrong here. And obviously, I, I hope for Kumar Rocker's sake that he's able to go somewhere and stay healthy and maybe get paid in next year's draft instead. Finally, we'd just like to mention my own book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves, is now out in paperback. You can buy it anywhere fine books are sold. Go find an independent bookstore near you. Buy my book and Dr. Milkman's book. 
buy all the books. In fact, all the books they have, just, just give them a credit card and they'll just give you a bunch of books to fill up your car. If you don't have an independent bookstore near you, though, I highly recommend bookshop.org. It is the best way to support independent bookstores across the country if you don't have one near you. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Katie Milkman. She is the James G. Dynan Professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and holds a secondary appointment at Penn's Perelman School of Medicine. She hosts the popular podcast Choiceology, and she is the author of a wonderful new book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Dr. Milkman, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. So I loved the book. Uh, I read it extremely quickly, too. It was really a a very easy, accessible read for something that is very grounded in science, which uh, to me is a neat trick when you can sort of do both of those things at the same time. And one thing I found particularly interesting is that uh, you're talking about very specific kinds of change. At least this was my interpretation. You're talking about changing for better habits or better routines rather than, say, trying to change one's character or parts of one philosophy. Uh, do you think that's an accurate way to depict that this is a way to change how you go about, like in practical terms, how you go about living your daily life? Absolutely. It's it's about the science of behavior change and um, sort of the daily decisions we make with long-term consequences. So I have, you start in the fir- very first chapter, you talk about uh, how f- having fresh starts, having some kind of trigger that changes a major circumstance in your life is a good time to think about enacting one or more of these behavior change ideas that you talk about in the book. So for example, in my own life, uh, so for this year, I have gotten married and I have now moved to a new house. So if I read your book correctly, I should be making all the changes. <laughs> well, maybe not all the changes, because actually there's research showing if you try to change too many things at once, that it can be detrimental and um, you get overwhelmed. So, But this seems like a great time to pick a big goal and try to make a change right after a move or uh, if you you know have the capacity after a marriage. Those are moments when you'd feel particularly open to change. And that's because the way we think about time is in these episodes. And when we feel like we're turning a new chapter in our lives and we have a fresh start, research shows we're actually more motivated to pursue new goals and we feel more optimistic about our chances. So that's part of it. We feel like this is the new me and the old me, you know, the unmarried me or the me in the old house, you know, those failures, the, the times when things didn't work out or when I thought I would make this change and wasn't able to, that's just, you know, the past is the past, bygones and the new me can do it. So that's why it's a good time. But again, one thing at a time is really an important message because too many things research shows, again, we get bogged down and we actually are more likely to fail than if we didn't try at all. One of the uh, main suggestions you make in the book. And so for readers who haven't read How to Change yet, obviously I recommend it, but you've organized it into the six sort of core chapters here and major uh, ideas, major philosophies behind practical tips that you can use to enact some of these changes. And the first one was actually probably the one that I related to the most. You called the chapter is impulsivity, but really the, the message there is you set these goals, but you need to make the actual pursuit of the goals fun. The idea being, look, getting to the goal is great. Everyone likes when we achieve some kind of goal, learning a language, finishing a new new project. Um, for me, it would be maybe working on my next book. But the idea is that the pursuit itself has to be fun or we just won't do it. And it seems to me that particularly ties into 
you're talking about these big life changes, right? Moving is stressful. I don't enjoy it. I will say it's basically done <laughs> now. I'm mostly moved in and I'm glad we're in the new house. I really like the new house. Um, you can see, listeners can't see, but you can see the new paint color behind me, which I'm particularly fond it. of. I love it. It's a lovely green. Thank you. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like the, the getting there was not great. So I saw, I was actually reading your book during the move and thinking, wait, really? I'm like really stressed right now. Is this really the right time to think about this? But the idea of, no, no, no make the change fun, make the goal pursuit fun. And you talk about gamification, which I'd like to delve into also. But that to me was a, a big, I guess a big separator for me from, no, 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 this, these changes that you want to make anyway, if you make them fun, it can separate them out from what I would say are other sort of more stressful or more difficult things going on in your everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. I really like the way that you framed that. I think the the key message from research is that we think if we just look for the most effective path to achieving our goals, we're going to get there. We've, you know, heard the mantra from Nike, just do it. And that is somehow what most of us think is right. That's how we'll get there. Uh, and reality is different. So there's research by Ayelet Fishbach um, of the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley of Cornell University showing that people make this mistake, but when they're encouraged to pursue the very same goal in a way that they'll enjoy, as opposed to the most effective way, even though they may make a little bit less progress on each attempt. So let's think about like the gym as a concrete example, right? You could choose the Stairmaster if you're trying to get fit and maybe that's the most effective and direct route to your goal. Or you could choose Zumba class with a friend and maybe you burn less calories and sort of sculpt your body a little less on each visit. But the thing is with Zumba class, you have fun and you're more likely to go again. And net net, that persistence tends to be what helps us achieve our goals fastest. So when they encourage people to look for fun ways to pursue the very same goal, as opposed to encouraging them to do it in the most effective way, they saw more persistence and better outcomes. So you give an example in the book that I particularly related to as a writer and a, an avid reader too, which was to get yourself to the gym, you used audiobooks as a reward, um, which I thought was great. Because again, I have done very similar things. And I, like you, do not particularly enjoy exercise for its own sake. I enjoy the after effects of it. But I'd love for you to tell the story of sort of how you kind of bribed yourself into exercising more <laughs> frequently, not just doing, not just listening to any old audiobook, but you picked certain audiobooks to further incentivize yourself to keep up going yeah. to the gym. Yeah, I'd love to tell the story. And, and by the way, I call this technique temptation bundling. So that might um, help people imagine what exactly I mean. And we've studied this and proven it works. But I was the original test subject, N of one in scientific speak. Um, as a graduate student, I was having trouble motivating myself after sort of a long day of classes to get to the gym, even though I knew it would be good for my mental health and, and, and physical health to do that. And, and in the long run, I'd be better off. I was just tired at the end of a long day. Really, all I wanted to do was sort of curl up on the couch with a page turner or binge watch TV, right? I wanted to indulge in entertainment. And I came up with a strategy that I know others have also come up with. I was not the originator of this idea, but I did do some of the original studies on it that I call temptation bundling. I stopped allowing myself to enjoy those temptations unless I was simultaneously exercising. So the rule was only at the gym could I get those entertainment indulgences. And suddenly I found myself craving trips to the gym to find out what happened next for me, it was with page turners. So I would listen to books like, um, you know, think the Hunger Games or Harry Potter or the Alex Cross series by James Patterson, right? They're like really engaging and you want to know what happens next as opposed to, you know, highbrow uh, 
<laughs> like I wasn't listening to books about calculus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Which I think is really important. It has to be something that's a hook. It's right. a temptation and it lures you in. So I found myself craving those trips to the gym, enjoying my time there because it would fly. I was distracted. I didn't even notice the time passing. And then I'd come back to my apartment after the workout and I felt invigorated, ready to dive into the problem sets and work I needed to do. I'd gotten my entertainment fix and my exercise in one fell swoop. And so I started seeing opportunities to do this outside of exercise as well, right? Like only let yourself pick up the Starbucks drink you crave on the way to hit the books at the library or only allow yourself to, and this is a, this was one for me. Like I, I really enjoyed pedicures, but I was only allowed to get a pedicure when I caught up on, um, you know, all the emails that I owed people. So you can think of different ways that you temptation bundle a favorite restaurant reserved for spending time with a difficult relative, whatever it is. There's lots of ways or podcasts you only listen to while doing household chores or cooking fresh meals. Um, And I've studied this and shown that it actually does help make a chore more of a pleasure and you engage in it more regularly. And it's funny, I did this research before I knew about the work we just discussed on Make It Fun. In fact, that work hadn't been done yet. This preceded it. But I think it's a really nice example of a specific tactic for making goal pursuit more enjoyable is just tying it to something that makes it more fun. So you can either choose a different activity, which is a more fun way to get to a goal, or you can temptation bundle and either achieve this sort of Mary Poppins effect of a spoonful of sugar making the medicine go down. I actually have uh, used that without knowing sort of what I was doing, but a couple of friends of mine have a movie podcast and it was pretty much the length of time required for me to mow the lawn at my old house. It was very close. <laughs> now my Perfect. new house has a slightly larger lawn, so I've just asked them to make the podcast longer to accommodate me. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I was gonna say, you could check out my podcast. Yes, it's, I need to. Right I can length. add it to the- Yes. It would, put, it on your, put it on your playlist for your next lawn. As, lo- as long as you go about an hour and 45 minutes each time, then we're perfect. Oh, you're gonna have to it. listen to multiple, <sighs> multiple episodes. I can, I can, I can, <laughs> I can do this. Uh, So you also mention a few times in passing in the book that learning a new language is something that people, they they like to set a goal, say, I'm going to learn this language. And of course, it's very hard to follow through on that. And I, I, having done this on my own and done it in school with multiple languages, not only can I confirm that, but there's a bit of a, you plateau, you can learn a few words. Yeah, I can say a few things. I can find the bathroom. And then suddenly you realize I can't say (laughs) anything at all. And you, it takes, you you sort of hit this point where you stall before you start making real progress to where you could maybe have a light conversation with somebody. And I, so now I've, this year I've been using the Duolingo app to try to learn Welsh. And I'm doing that as I read your book and I see multiple techniques in the app that could have been drawn directly from the pages of your book. You talk about mm-hmm. gamification, which I'd love to have you expand on here. And also the timely reminders, the way that Duolingo is very good at not just telling you, hey, you, you might lose your streak if you don't practice in the next three hours, but also they're very good at pushing content back in front of you. Hey, you haven't studied this in a while. It might be good to refresh your memory. And I have found myself get extremely caught up in in totally trivial things in this app. Like I got to keep, my streak is 190 something days. That's really not like, who cares, right? Most people would say, what, what, why are you so consumed by this? But I am, I'd be really angry if I lost my streak at this point. So it's working. It's absolutely working on me to keep me coming back to the app. And that idea, there are so many little games involved and rewards in the app. It's, hey, this was designed to sort of trick my brain into getting me to do something that is not actually all that fun. 
I love that you brought up Duolingo. Um, it's a great example of an app that I think has has used a lot, as you said, a lot of the lessons of the book, a lot of the lessons of science to make uh, persistence on a behavior that's got a big long-term goal, but in the day-to-day experience isn't necessarily super fun and rewarding, uh, more likely to work out. So Luis Van On, who is the founder of Duolingo, was a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon, uh, if I'm getting my history right, mm-hmm. and and is a scientist, and he's scientifically minded. He's a MacArthur Genius Award winner. He's really interested in behavioral science. And you know, once, once you sort of are hooked on one kind of science, and then you move into an area where you see another kind, it's easier to jump in, read the literature, adopt the best practices. He's used a lot of best practices from research in the construction of the site. There's a lot of, um, as you said, reminders that are used cleverly, uh, power of loss aversion and streaks. So we don't want to lose a streak. We Losses have been proven to feel significantly worse than gains feel good, right? So if you lose $20, that's more depressing and, and um, <laughs> dis- dissatisfying than finding $20 on the street is good. So the lesson is never like lose $20 in the morning and find in the afternoon your net worse off. Uh, but anyway, th- so streaks, wanting to avoid losing a streak can be very motivating. And uh, also, of course, sort of other principles of gamification mindset, research has been incorporated into the app, sort of trying to give you a growth mindset, a la Carol Dweck's wonderful research on the power of that, and thinking not of of performance as, as fixed, but as something that can grow over time. So I think it's an excellent application. And I wrote in the book about the dual, you know, sort of double-edged sword of gamification, that research supports it as an extremely useful tactic for making things fun when it's something that we do actually buy into. It's a self selected goal. We don't feel that we're being coerced through gamification techniques and that they do actually strike a chord and hit home. I think with the sort of delightful owl of Duolingo, (laughs) there's a lot of joy in the design. It seems authentic to most people that that the gamification features are fun as opposed to annoying. And it's a self-selected goal. So it's not like a a supervisor at your company imposing some goal on you and then trying to gamify it and create prizes in a way that you might feel is, you know, infantilizing you, but rather it's a goal you have chosen. And so you sort of appreciate this, this program that's trying to make it more enjoyable to reach it. So I'm a big fan. I think they've done a beautiful job applying lots of the lessons from research to make that app, uh, a very useful tool for learning languages. Although I have to say, uh, I'm fam- very familiar with it. I've talked to Luis Van on about the techniques and looked at it a lot as an example. I have not personally tried to use it to learn a language. So someday, <laughs> I, I hope, maybe in retirement, after all the madness of um, you know furiously trying to publish as many things and discover as many things as possible that I will make time to learn a language like you are. I admire you. Uh, we'll see how it goes. At some point I will actually have to go to Wales and try to speak this too and make some of these, the sound. The, you no, picked a tough one. You couldn't start with something a little simpler. No, huh? no. I married into this one. So it's, and I'm just constantly going to my wife who speaks a little bit of it already. And I said, wait, it, that's not, there's no vowels in this. How am I supposed to say this? Like they don't even, their orthography is different. I didn't know that. I'm thinking, oh, it's what they write with the Roman alphabet. How hard could it be, right? It's like, no, LL is pronounced. I can't even, I don't even know if you can hear that sound, but it is not, it's not ours, right? It's not an English sound. So yeah, I'm having. I'm, I have to admit, I, I watched the Netflix series. It's the queen, right? Am I saying yeah, the right name? Yeah. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. Always. I. The, there's the movie. Oh, the crown. The, the, are you talking about the, the crown? crown. Yeah, right. yeah. Where he the goes queen to is the movie. Yeah. Yes. 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 He goes to Wales. Yep. I was trying to learn. So anyway, I'm, I'm extra sympathetic yes. after having seen that. Yes. Oh, I enjoy. I appreciated that episode much more for having already started. <laughs> and my wife is sitting there laughing at whatever word it is they try to get Prince Charles to say that has essentially every non-English <laughs> sound all into one word. And and I'm like, I had just started. I was maybe ten days in. And I looked at her. I said. Wait, is that what I have to do? Like, why did you show me this? This is just going to discourage me forever. But I guess was, not. So I'm still doing it. Very interesting. Anyway, it was, lot, it was a really interesting series. Um, mm-hmm. Focus the part that focused on that oh, and absolutely. a goal that's not self-selected, mm-hmm. but is important for higher reasons. And how do you motivate someone in the teacher relationship? Anyway, that's kind of wonderful for anyone interested in motivation. I thought. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So there's another chapter you actually talk about essentially in praise of forgetfulness, how we can use our forgetfulness, again, to change our routines and further motivate ourselves. I mentioned the timely reminders that come through in Duolingo. That's actually goes back to Paul Pimsler's method of teaching languages too, which is essentially at some point you're going to forget. Naturally, you're going to forget. So you time your recall essentially to make sure that you don't lose track of those memories. But you put that into also a larger framework, urging people to create, not just create checklists, which I'm a fan of check. I have some sitting next to me right now, but your idea of your checklists or plans are to make them cue based to make them more effective, essentially. So just creating a checklist isn't enough. I think we've all done that. We created a checklist and then you just sort of put it away and forget to go through it or I'm particularly good at picking and choosing. I'm going to check that one off first because it's really easy and then skip over <laughs> the harder ones. So how do you advise people to, to do that, whether it's an actual checklist or merely a plan, to advise them to create them in a way that they're more likely to execute? Yeah, this is based on research by Peter Golwitzer, who's an NYU psychologist and really the world's expert on planning. Mm-hmm. And what he discovered is that most of us make plans naturally in a way that's suboptimal, which is we just sort of say, you know, here's the thing I want to achieve. I'm writing it on my checklist. That's that's mm-hmm. the big goal. You know, I want to exercise more. Or I want to practice Duolingo regularly. Um, I want to learn Welsh. So we have some big goal, but we don't break it down and we don't make a really concrete plan that has an if then statement in it. And he found that people who are prompted to and follow through on making if-then statements actually achieve their goals at a much higher rate. So an if-then statement looks like, you know, if it is 4 p.m. on a weekday, I will spend 30 minutes on the Duolingo app 
uh, you know, executing mm-hmm. <laughs> and even better, you know, maybe 4 PM isn't the right, maybe timing isn't the right cue for you. You could say, as soon as I close my laptop after my last meeting at work, I will spend 30 minutes on Duolingo or every time when I am commuting, I will spend 30 minutes listening to a language, um, podcast. So it's really concrete sort of when the following thing, when this cue arises, which might be a time, it might be, you know, a moment in each day at the end of work or a commute, um, then I will follow through. And having that specific if then cue based plan turns out to create much, much better outcomes. We're less likely to forget the cue triggers recall that this is when I'm supposed to do the thing. So we're, um, we're like less likely to forget. We also feel like we've made a commitment to ourselves and we don't want to be inconsistent. So it's harder to procrastinate. You don't, you know, you can put off the vague intention to someday practice, but if now is exactly the time I said I would do it, putting it off feels like breaking a commitment instead of just delaying as a, as a tactic. Um, so those reason for those reasons, his research and, and research by many others now, which has validated it in many different settings from sort of voter turnout to getting flu shots <laughs> in people, uh, when we make those concrete if then plans, we see the, these better outcomes. So you mentioned flu shots. I was going to ask anyway. Um, we're in the midst of a rather substantial crisis here where we cannot, I mean, the United States specifically, but also in many parts of the world, we can't get people to take a vaccine that could probably save their lives. And we're dealing with a huge crisis, obviously, of misinformation. So this is a complicated issue. But I read your, your the penultimate chapter in the book on conformity and thought, is that a way we could craft public policy maybe to get more people to take the vaccine? There's a portion of the population we're never going to reach, right? They think there are microchips in the vaccine that's going to change your DNA, and I can't take the tinfoil out of their hats for them. But there are a lot of people, I know some of these people, who just, I don't know, I'm not sure, I want more information. Do you think, have you done any research, or have others done research on, could we just convince more people to do this by showing them the power of conformity bias? Hey, most a lot of other people you know have gotten these vaccines as well. Yeah, I love this question. And I have to say that this is a topic that could not be nearer and dearer to my heart. Last June of 2020, the very beginning of June, I wrote an op-ed in USA Today and said, we are going to have a challenge in a you know, roughly a year's time <laughs> when vaccines are ready. Um, everybody was already, you know, very busy investing billions of dollars in the development of the vaccines and starting to think about how do we scale up distribution? And no one was thinking about how do we make sure people are eager to get these things and understand them. And if assuming they were safe, right, that was a big assumption at the time, but now we're very lucky to have safe and effective vaccines. But the question was, you know, assuming we are lucky enough to get a safe and effective vaccine, we need to do some work to make sure we have a strategy that will encourage people to get them and be comfortable doing that. Cause we know people often don't follow through on things like vaccination, even when it's in their long-term best interest, we need to understand how. So I have been working and spending, you know, pretty much all of my research hours on this problem mm-hmm. for the last y- over a year now. Um, we ran two, I call them mega studies, massive experiments, testing dozens of different uh, ideas from a team of scientists, about 150 who I co-organize um, at the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, which I co-direct at, at the University of Pennsylvania, who are, you know, they're interdisciplinary. We go out to them when there's a major challenge and say, what's your best idea? And then we test everything simultaneously. So we partnered with Walmart pharmacies, as well as Penn Medicine and um, Geisinger Health, two local health systems to test dozens of different messaging strategies 
strategies to encourage vaccination. We also partnered with the city of Philadelphia on a vaccine sweepstakes that was designed by scientists to, uh, and was built in a way that it was a, a quasi experiment. There were testable um, features of it to understand how incentives would work. The key takeaways from all of this work um, to me are, you know, first of all, we could have done a better job with the messaging at the outset, unquestionably, saying, you know, everyone else is doing it is helpful. Actually, the best message we identified was not a social norms message, though social norms messaging was effective. But the very best message was just telling people a vaccine is reserved for you or waiting for you. It's been set aside for you specifically, giving a sense of ownership. And um, if that comes from your pharmacy or your doctor's office, it conveys, it seems a, probably a recommendation that this is the right thing to do. We were sending reminders and those every reminder we tested was effective, basically. <laughs> you know, And the more reminders, the better. So nagging worked. But this, this simple language of, you know, sort of, it's already been set aside for you. It's going to be hassle-free. It's recommended. Um, it belongs to you. Don't let someone else come and take the thing that's yours. Uh, that that was our best performer and what we recommended. And a lot of states did adopt that. I have to say that now, you know, we're talking in August of 2021. I think that was great advice for April, you know, um, a really great advice for January <laughs> when we were first rolling it out. I think we're well beyond the point where an optimized message is the solution to this challenge. And so, uh, you know, I think there are places in the world and also there will be booster shots where this scientific insight is going to be valuable. I don't think social norms, messaging, although let's use it, why not? We should use all the best messaging, but I don't think just sort of deploying the best social norms messaging and the best uh, reserve for you type messaging is how we get from where we are to herd immunity. I think the time has come to move beyond nudging. And I'm really supportive of things like what my employer, the University of Pennsylvania has done, requiring the vaccine for every student and faculty and staff, um, unless there's a religious, you know, uh, exemption. I think that's the point we're at to, to keep people truly safe, that employers, need to be making this a mandate. I'm, I'm supportive of, of those kinds of approaches. I, I was initially also bullish on incentives and thought that was the right approach for a while when there were the obstacles we were seeing were things like, you know, people didn't have the time or they were worried about the cost of taking that time away from work. If there were um, any issues, I think we've also gotten to the point where that's not even enough, at least the size of incentives that we've been seeing so far. I think these mandates are the way to go. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. So in the chapter on confidence, uh, which had me singing uh, Julie Andrews from The Sound of Music, right? I have confidence in me the whole time I was reading it. Um, <laughs> what I thought was really interesting was I, I felt very seen by it in a way, but I also thought I didn't realize this worked. Where you talk about the power of setting ambitious goals for yourself. So reach when trying to decide at the outset of some new project or, or other behavior change, set for something very ambitious, but give yourself mulligans, give yourself permission to miss occasionally, which to me, like I said, I felt very seen by it because that's absolutely 100% been a problem for me, which is I will start, I will set an ambitious goal for anything, 
And then as it goes along, I'll hit some kind of stumbling block and I'll have to skip for whatever reason, a valid reason or maybe not even a valid reason. And that's where I, that's where I lose it because I don't take that extra step to give myself permission or to forgive myself even for missing a day or missing a step in the process. And, and yet you actually say in the book that that's a powerful and important part of the process of setting the ambitious goal and still keeping yourself on track to ultimately achieve it. Yes, absolutely. And I, I love that you brought that up. So that's research that I'm um, referencing by Marissa Sharif of Wharton and Suzanne Shu of Cornell, who did this really fascinating research based on Marissa's own goal pursuit. And she was an avid runner who tried to run every day of the week when she could, but realized sometimes she just couldn't hit that goal and she would get really discouraged and, and throw up her hands. And, and it's something actually researchers have dubbed, and I love this, the what the hell effect, where you have a big goal, you have a miss, and you just give up on yourself completely. So she was trying to figure out how do I strike a balance between these two things we know in the literature about goals. One, that we want stretch goals that push us, because if we set easy goals, we're not going to achieve as much as if we set tough goals. But second, if we set tough goals, we will inevitably fail sometimes. And there's this danger that then we give up on ourselves and exhibit the what the hell effect. So she was trying to bridge the two things and the strategy she adopted and then later tested and proved effective in a number of different settings was giving herself, I call them mulligans. She calls them emergency reserves, which actually is probably a better name because it highlights that you don't want to just be taking them left and right, that it really is meant to be reserved for an emergency. So if she set herself a goal of seven days a week of running, she gave herself two emergency reserves. And that meant uh, if she missed a day, she could call it an emergency and say, I'm still on track. If she missed two days, she could call her second emergency. If she hits three, now she's out of luck. Now she's going to have to throw, say, I failed. But what she found is that she was very... Uh, hesitant to use these emergency reserves. She never wanted to. So she would sort of save them up in case there was a true emergency at the end of the week. And um, in the end, she rarely took them at all. And she was achieving far more than if she had um, just been going for sort of a five day a week goal where she would just take days off. She proved this in research with large populations of others for things ranging from exercise to just a, you know, doing a daily task that they were assigned to do all along the lines of something like Duolingo practice. So it it's proven to be um, vastly more effective than either setting a tough goal and giving yourself no wiggle room, uh, setting a, a weak but equivalent goal, right? Do something, say, five days a week. That's the same as seven days a week with two emergency right. reserves, but it's not as motivating. So people don't do nearly as well when they do that as when they do the seven days with two emergency reserves. So I think it's a very clever way to deal with those dual challenges of, um, of wanting a tough goal and, and wanting to give yourself a way out so you don't declare failure and say, what the hell? So last topic I wanted to ask you about from uh, the book, How to Change, was commitment devices. It was probably the one I was least familiar with. And MBBY had the hardest time trying to figure out how best to integrate those into whatever. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Probably write something. Let's say that that's my next big project is to figure out another book. Um, I'm sure my literary agent would love for me to do that at some point. Um, and it seems like the research on those commitment devices was a little bit mixed in the sense that there are certain ways that the, there are certain tasks that these might work better for. There are certain commitment levels that these might work better for. My guess is most listeners haven't heard of these before. So could you give sort of a quick overview of what commitment devices are and are there certain tasks, certain goals to which they are best applied? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, a commitment device is despite being something that we should 
be quite familiar with. It's very counterintuitive. So the idea is basically treating yourself the way you're used to treating someone you're su supervising or <laughs> being treated by a, like a government. So we're really familiar with the idea that say government will fine us if we speed. They know, you know, a benevolent policymaker realized it, it's going to be tempting for citizens to speed, but it's bad for them and it's bad for others if they do. So we're going to say this is the speed limit and here's a fine if you exceed it mm. to prevent the temptation that you that you speed. Well, that turns out to make us better off. What's funny about a commitment device is it's you applying the same tool to yourself. So you recognize that if you say, uh, you know, don't exercise enough or drink too much alcohol or um, don't, uh, you know, get your Duolingo practice in, it will be bad for you. So you find yourself, you say, I'm going to find myself. I'm going to penalize myself if I don't achieve this goal. And you can literally put money on the line that you will have to forfeit if you fail to achieve a goal using different websites like stick.com or um, Beeminder. And you say, you know, this much money will go to this charity, maybe a charity I hate if you want to really make it sting mm -hmm. to lose. <laughs> and you define a referee who will report on your success. So these commitment devices, it's interesting that you said that they have mixed results. Actually, I know of no mixed results. Oh, okay. I misunderstood the then. Great. The evidence is very strong that they work. That doesn't mean we like them. <laughs> I think that's probably what you're thinking about. A lot of people aren't comfortable using such a strong measure on themselves, right? Or, or, or shy away from them. But there's incredible evidence on efficacy. I think they're a much underutilized tool, especially when it's a really important goal to you mm -hmm. that can help a lot. So I just described cash commitments. There are other kinds of commitments, like you can put money in a, in a savings account that you are literally not able to take your money out of until you reach a predetermined savings date or goal. And it has the same interest rate as a standard account. Research shows that having access to such a, an account, um, in addition to sort of the standard savings account, increased people's savings 80% year over year. Being able to put money on the line that you'd have to forfeit if you failed to quit smoking in six months helped smokers quit 30% more than not having access to that kind of a tool and, and being aware of it. So these things are really effective. And yet adoption isn't that high, even though they're effective, right? You take a hundred people and you offer them access to a commitment device, say only 30, take it up. You can compare that full hundred set of a hundred people, including the 70 who never used it to another group of a hundred who weren't even offered these tools. You see huge differences in, in efficacy, even with small adoption rates. So what that says to me is well, what if we could just get more people interested in using these kinds of tools, we'd probably see even higher rates of success. So I think they're underutilized, but it's scary, you know, putting money on the line. That's real. Those are real stakes. Not everyone wants to take that risk and believes they won't fail or that it's worth it, that their goal is so important that they should put that money on the line. But when we're willing to, the results are very good. Perhaps I just didn't like what I read, and that's why I was <laughs> now these results aren't good enough. I don't I don't like this. This is scary. I don't it's, I don't want to do scary. this. It is scary. you know, it's very effective. <laughs> There's also soft commitment, which mm -hmm. is putting, you know, basically finding yourself in, in gentler ways. Like I'm gonna make a pledge publicly, mm -hmm. and then shame is what you're creating as an incentive instead of a fine. And that's not as effective, not surprising, <laughs> because shame doesn't hurt as much as giving someone a thousand dollars, but uh, it's somewhat effective. And so sometimes we can use tools along those lines that are still a form of commitment. They're just softer forms of commitment. My guest today has been Dr. Katie Milkman from the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania. You should check out her new book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, published this year by Penguin Random House Portfolio. And also check out her podcast, Choiceology. Dr. Milkman, thank you so much for joining me.
Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay safe. Go get that vaccine if you haven't. And I hate to say it, but got to wear your mask again. I will be even at the ballpark sometimes. I hope you will be too. 